Isaiah 41. Let's stand, if we can, for the reading of God's Word. We're going to get a sampling of the chapter. We're going to read verse 1 and 2, and then we'll skip down and read verse 21, and then we'll read verse 28 and 29, and uh, just kind of give you an idea here of what the chapter, some highlights from the chapter, what the chapter is talking about. The Bible says in verse 1, Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near and let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. Verse 2, Who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings. He gave them as the dust to his sword, and has driven stubble to his bow. Skip down with me to verse 21. Notice in verse uh, 1 it talked about let us come together to judgment. Alright, so picture a courtroom. And God is the judge, jury, and executioner. 21, he says, Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. Who is he speaking to? 28 and 29 tells us who he is speaking to. Look at the end of the chapter. For I beheld, and there was no man even among them, and there was no counselor that when I asked of them could answer a word. Behold, they are all vanity. Their works are nothing. Look here. Their molten images are wind and confusion. Uh, The Lord is calling idols and those who create and worship those idols into his presence And he is uh, saying to them, present your case as to why men should worship you instead of worshiping me. Uh, Are you going to continue to bow down to an idol or are you going to worship the true God of heaven? And uh, you get into the middle of the chapter and you find that God is so great that in our time of struggle, we don't need to turn to an idol. We can turn to him because he calms all our fears. And last week, out of chapter 40, we looked at the title, God is Greater Than Our Circumstances. This week, we'll look at this title, God is Greater Than Our Fears. Greater Than Our Fears. Many people act on fear. They make decisions based on fear. And they run to uh, human, human, uh, humanism because of fear. Or they run to a coping mechanism because of fear. And God says, when you are afraid, turn and trust me. We're going to look at that here. Uh, in the Bible study tonight. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We do pray that you would open our eyes to it. Spirit of God, we pray you would lead us and guide us into all truth. And Lord, uh, for anyone here tonight that may have not found you as their way of salvation, the cross of of Calvary, Lord, uh, may they be enlightened to the truth that Jesus loves them and died for their sins on the cross. Be with our time this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Look back with me at verse number 1. The Bible says, Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, uh, then let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. In this chapter, God is calling into his courtroom the false idols that man worships as well as the men who worship them. Now, you might sit here and say, Pastor, I don't bow down to any false idols. And with that, I would say, great. I'm glad that you don't have a shrine in your bedroom with some kind of black lights or purple lights and, you know, that you don't go and bow down before. Uh, And I hope no one here does that. I don't think anyone here tonight 
uh, does that, and you say, so this chapter has nothing to do with me, well, I'd say, whoa, hold the phone just a minute, all right? Idolatry goes far beyond bowing down to a piece of stone, a piece of wood, all right? Uh, Anything I put between me and God and give my passion and devotion to is an idol, is an idol, all right? So in my own heart and life, I've had to stop and go, what is it that is jockeying for first place in my life and trying to overtake God? And in my own heart and life, I look at my family. I love my family. I love my family deeply. My wife and my kids, they, they are my everything. Do they mean more than me, to me than God does? Because if so, my family can become my idol. I love sports. I love to watch sports. I love competition. I'm a competitive person. Uh, don't get me on a basketball quarter. You're going to see there's another side to Pastor Lejeune, all right? Don't play me in a board game. I hate board games, but if you get me in one, I'm all in, amen? And uh, you're going to see another side of me. I love competition. I, look, if two ants are racing down the sidewalk, I'm going to pick one, and I'm going to cheer, all right? I love competition. And so it have sports climbed in between me and God. Because if I'm not careful, then I can end up with an idol of of watching sports or playing sports. And for you, it might be a different hobby. For you, it might be something different. Listen, it is even possible to put religion between you and God and be all about a church or all about uh, some ceremonialism or all about uh, some ritual. And now that is between you and God and you have allowed that to, to become an idol in your life. For each one of us in here, it can be different. Whether it's a child, a grandchild, a spouse, a friend, maybe it's work, maybe it's money. Uh, the list goes on and on and on and on of what it could be in your life. That could be an idol. And God says, okay, I'm calling you into my courtroom. Let's look at your idols and let's see if they have done for you and they are as powerful as I am. And then you make the decision whether or not you should worship that idol or you should worship me. And, I, and I'm going to tie this back into our title, God is greater than our fears. Why is it that we fall on worshiping or showing more passion for an idol than it is we do God? And the answer, I believe, is simple, is that we don't really know and trust God as we should. Because to know God and to trust God is to have fear melt away and disappear. You see, fear comes from a lack of trusting God. And as I trust God, my fears melt away. My fears melt away. We're going to see that tonight. Where does your faith really lie? Is God greater than your fears? Or are your fears in your heart greater than your God? Uh, Chapter 40, I mentioned this a moment ago. Uh, we, We saw that the prophet made the case for why God is greater than the universe He meets out or measures out the water with the palm of His hand. We saw last week, He measures the universe with a span, the distance between the pinky and a thumb. Chapter 41, God shows how He is greater than the false idols that people turn to when they are afraid. Look with me at verse 6. And let's read down through verse 8 of the chapter here. Look here. It says, And we see people in their fear turning to idolatry. It says, They helped everyone his neighbor, and everyone said to his brother, Be of good courage. So the carpenter, look here, we see the making of idols. So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he that smoothed with the hammer, uh, with that smote the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering, and he fastened it with nails, that it should not be moved. But thou... 
Israel art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. So when they were afraid, they turned to each other and they said, Hey, uh, listen, you, you make the idol. You help me over here make the idol. And we have these idols that we can turn to and worship in our time of great fear. Uh, the heathen turned to each other and to false gods when they are afraid. But God's people are not to turn to an idol, are not to turn to a distraction. Rather, they are to turn to Him when they are afraid. In this chapter, God does a couple of overarching things. And this is not going to be on the screen, but if you want to jot some summary down of what I'm about to say, uh, that would be great. And you can go back and read the chapter later, and you can see these two overarching things. The first thing I see is that He comforts Israel by promising future deliverance. He comforts Israel by promising future deliverance. Now, real quick here, for those of you that weren't here last week or those of you that weren't listening last week, all right, which might apply to a good chunk of you, all right? Um, Listen, when was this written? It was written prior to the Babylonian captivity. Remember, Isaiah was a contemporary to King Hezekiah, all right? And Israel had their, their country intact. Judah was intact. But he predicted that Babylon would come in and would carry them away captive. We saw that in chapter 39, that he would carry them away captive. And then chapter 40 to 66, Isaiah writes to the Jews who will live at the end of the Babylonian captivity and will go back and reestablish the city of Jerusalem. And so chapter 41 is not written to his contemporaries. It is written to the Jews who will live a generation or two later and will leave Babylon to again reestablish their country. And so this is written so that when the Jews are in captivity, they can pull out the writings of Isaiah and say, there is coming a day when the Lord will deliver us. So as I read 41, I am reminded that God had Isaiah write this so that uh, there would be a promise of future deliverance. But to get more specific, he, give de- he gives details in this chapter about the deliverance. This is the second overarching thought. He gives details about the deliverance and challenges false gods to try and do the same. So he's going to predict how this is going to come about. And he's going to challenge the false gods to try to predict how they would go about doing it. So this chapter has three paragraphs in it. And let's look at each one and see how our God is not only greater than our circumstances, but He's also greater than our fears. Okay, number one, notice the prophecy of Cyrus. The prophecy of Cyrus. Look at Isaiah 41 with me and look at verse number 2. Verse number 2. Now, a name is not given yet. That's coming in a chapter or two. But look at verse number 2. The Bible says... Who raised up the righteous man from the east? Who is this righteous man from the east? Called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings. He gave them, these countries, as the dust to his sword and as driven stubble to his bow. Now we get more description of this mystery man in verse 25 and 26. Look at 25 and 26. God is speaking here. Jehovah is speaking here. He says, I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come from the rising of the sun. Shall he call upon my name, and he shall come upon princes as upon mortar, 
And as the potter treadeth clay, who hath declared from the beginning that we may know, and before time that we may say, He is righteous, yea, there is none that showeth, yea, there is none that declareth, yea, there is none that heareth your word. So again, context, historical context. We must have historical context. All right? This is a prophecy about when Israel is in captivity. Someone is going to come along and bring about their delivery. This man is going to rise up from the east. He's going to march in, and with his sword, he's going to conquer all the nations, and he's going to give the Jews their liberty. Who is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the Persian king who would live over a hundred years later. He's talking about a man named Cyrus. Let me show you some verses that describe Cyrus in the very book of Isaiah. Turn over to chapter 44 and look at verse 28. And I don't want to give away too much because um, we're going to get into more details about Cyrus out of Second Chronicles and the book of Ezra that were written 100 years later. Uh, we'll look at that in weeks to come. But look at chapter 44 and verse 28. And let's meet Cyrus, all right? Now, again, I want to just say this here. God is calling Cyrus by name and describing his personality and his task over a hundred years before he would be born. That is a miracle, people. That is amazing. And the historicity of when Isaiah wrote this has been proven by the unearthing of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Isaiah did indeed predict that a man named Cyrus would rise up and give Israel their freedom uh, over a hundred years before he would even be born. That's amazing. Look at chapter 44 and look at verse 48. The Bible says, That saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built into the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. Anybody want to guess who it was that sent Israel uh, out of Babylon to go build the temple? It was Cyrus. It was Cyrus. Isaiah said there's going to be a man named Cyrus He's going to have the personality of a shepherd. He's going to handle my people like a shepherd. So we see Cyrus the shepherd. By the way, Proverbs chapter 21 and uh, verse number 1 says, it says, uh, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. uh, uh, He turneth it whithersoever he will. Who's in charge of the kings? God is. Uh, Look, we hyper-focus on politics and if you've attended here long enough, you know that I preach against people who are obsessed with the news. I don't preach against them. I preach against obsessing with the news, all right? Don't, look, turn off Fox News. Turn off talk radio. Turn off MSNBC and CNN or whatever alternate news site that you have. I'm not against getting a few minutes of news. I gather a few minutes of news each day. But listen, why obsess over something that you cannot control outside of a vote every two to four years? Amen? And on top of all that, God is in heaven and He holds President Biden's heart and He holds Vladimir Putin's heart and He holds President Xi over in China's heart in His hand and as the rivers of water, He can turn it whithersoever He will to do whatever He wants. So why do we need to obsess over that stuff? And here we see that God is going to take the heart of Cyrus and He's going to move it to set His people free. What a bold prediction by Isaiah. Again, 
When this was written, the Israelites had not even been carried away into captivity yet. But boy, these scriptures would become precious after they had been carried away into activity. They'd go back and say, hey, remember that writing by Isaiah about one day when we're in captivity and there being a, a, a someone to come up from the east and, and give us deliverance? Go back and get that. Let's look at that and oh, the comfort that it provided. But not only was Cyrus a shepherd, but Cyrus also was anointed. Look at chapter 45, Isaiah 45. Look at verse 1. Again, hundred over a hundred years before Cyrus would be born, Isaiah would describe, call him by name and describe his, um, uh, describe his calling from above. Look there, chapter 45, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord who is anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two uh, leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Look back at the beginning of the verse. It says to his anointed. Cyrus was anointed by God to set his people free. And here God is saying to the idols, I'm not only going to tell you I'm greater than you, I'm going to predict how I'm going to get my people out of captivity. Now you go ahead and predict and tell me how you're going to do it. Wait a minute. What's that deafening sound? You can't predict because you're a piece of wood or gold and you can't even speak? But yet people bow to you? Not only was he to be a shepherd, and not only was he to be anointed. Look at Isaiah 46, and look at verse number 11. Chapter 46, verse number 11. Here we get a description of his military prowess. The Bible says, calling, speaking of Cyrus, calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country, yet I have spoken it. I will uh, also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Countries will fold in front of the mighty Cyrus as he marches through the east, the northeast. He comes down from the northeast. He marches through and he overthrows the kingdoms uh, in front of him, including the Babylonian Empire that would hold Israel in captivity. And so we see here uh, his selection. His selection. I didn't give... Letter A. So, uh, number one, the prophecy of Cyrus. Letter A, his selection. Speaking of the selection of Cyrus, letter B, notice Israel's security. Israel's security. Look at verse number four of Isaiah 41. Go back there with me. And let's do our best to understand this. Um, Because God is able to predict not only that his people would be in captivity, but how they would be set free, Israel can find great security in a God who is going to take care of them and protect them even in fearful times. Look at verse 3. Speaking of God, he pursued them and passed safely, even by the way that he hath now gone with his feet. Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. God says to Israel, listen, you don't need to fear because I'm in charge, and I'm going to punish you for your idolatry. But once you've been uh, thoroughly uh, punished, I will set you free. And you can rest assured that I have your best interests at heart. Sometimes, quick application, sometimes we fall under the punishing hand of God. How many of you know what it feels like to have God punish you? Would you hold up your hand? And you know what? When God is punishing us... And by the way, if God didn't punish you, He wouldn't be a very good Heavenly Father, would He? 
What kind of parent are you if you just let your kids do whatever they want, whenever they want, with no consequences? And if you really are a child of God, then he's got, He has to punish you from time to time. Life has to be uncomfortable from time to time. And I know this about myself and just from studying human nature, we're all very good at pointing the finger at other reasons why we're suffering instead of looking in the mirror and saying, I'm my own worst enemy. I deserve God's hand of punishment on me right now because of my own choices. Long before you look to deflect and look to point the finger, you should be looking yourself square in the eye and owning up to your own mistakes. Instead of blaming the preacher or blaming the boss or blaming your spouse, or blaming your children, or blaming your co-workers, or blaming your friends. Look yourself in the eye and say, God, are you punishing me for my own sin? Now here's the beautiful thing. God never chastises us more than He absolutely has to. He always does it out of love. Always does it out of love. Hebrews 12 tells us, For whom the Lord loveth, He correcteth, or chasteneth, even as a father, in a son in whom He delighteth. God delights in you. We saw Sunday morning out of the 139th Psalms that His thoughts toward us are precious, that they're so innumerable that they outnumber the grains of sand on the shores. God loves you, and when He punishes you, it's always for the end of getting you back in line. And my friend, you can rest assured that God is going to take care of you. Israel's security, notice letter C, the heathen's surety. The heathen's surety. Where do folks who run from God find rest? Well, they don't find it in God because they're running from Him. Go back to verse 5. We looked at these verses a moment ago. The Bible says, Isaiah 41, 5, the isles saw it. And the word isles there is just a reference to people outside of Judah, people who lived on all the other extremities of the earth. The isles saw it and feared. Uh, The ends of the earth were afraid. So we see a spirit of fear throughout the earth. They drew near and came, so they gathered with each other. They helped every one of his neighbor. But, uh, and everyone said to his brother, Be of good courage. Don't fear. So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he that smoothed with a hammer, him that smote the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. And he fastened it with nails, that it should not be moved. Where do the heathen, those running from God, where do they find their security? In false gods. In false idols. Now, I've drawn this out before, but I, I know it needs to be drawn out right here. And some of you don't remember me, won't have remembered me saying this or knew the church and haven't heard me say it. What is the lure, the draw, to bow down to a piece of wood or gold? When I was a little boy, I'd go to uh, Sunday school and I would hear uh, uh, them talk about, you know, uh, folks that bow down to the God of Baal, a piece of stone. And I'm like, who is so dumb to bow down to a piece of rock? Like, do they really think that rock is going to be able to help them? Like, I would never go outside and bow down to a, a rock. What's the draw there? All right? And the older I got and the more I studied the Bible, the more I began to understand this, they were not worshiping the rock. They were worshiping the satanic forces behind the rock. That's what they were worshiping. That's what Baal was. That's what Asheroth was. That's what all those Old Testament gods are. And you know what? Those same demonic forces 
are still present in the world today. And in many cultures, people still worship those forces by bowing down to a piece of rock. Get on a plane and fly to India and drive down any highway in India and what you'll see is all kinds of little uh, places on the side of the road where they have uh, built a shrine with a god or god gods there and you can stop and worship thousands of god, gods within just a few feet. They're, they're worshiping the demonic forces that are behind those things. But here in our Western world where atheism is uh, being sold by Satan to our world, people don't necessarily bow down to a rock. Now, there are churches where people maybe bow down to an, a false idol. Uh, but, uh, uh, but most people today, they're not bowing down to a rock, but they're still all the same. They're worshiping the sinful forces that are out there that were behind the rock. Uh, listen, we have uh, the God of fertility was the God of Baal, I believe it was. And you know what the God of fertility in America is? It's the worshiping of human sexuality. Oh, we have a big problem with the worshiping the God of human sexuality in our culture today. People sleep with whoever they want, whenever they want. And uh, listen, if you say anything about that, then you're hateful and intolerant. And I'm sorry. The Bible is very clear that you can either worship the false idols and turn to them when you're afraid, or you can worship the true and living God of heaven. What do the heathen do? They turn to each other and they network. They lock arms against God and they say, let's make us idols because in that we will find security. But my friend, God's servants, God's children are not to behave that way. Now, to be very clear, this is a Jewish passage written to the Jews in their time of leaving Babylonian captivity. And so uh, we are making applications to today. Uh, so the, transla- the rather the interpretation of the passage is that the Israelites were God's chosen people. But my friend, if you're saved, you're also God's chosen people. So we see letter A, um, Cyrus's selection. Letter B, Israel's security. Letter C, the heathen's surety. Notice letter D, God's servants. God's servants. Look at verse number 8 and 9. The Bible says, but thou, Israel, art my servant. And I have those words underlined in my Bible. Art my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham. Notice those next two words. My friend. Oh, there's so much to unpack in that one verse. Let's just quickly uh, uh, brush over. Israel. The name Israel means uh, prince of God. All right. Uh, Jacob means deceiver or trickster. Abraham, the friend of God. Uh, and, and Jacob is called God's servant. And we see a duality of a personality with the children of Israel. They both were deceptive and a trickster in that Jacob was, but yet they were uh, the, the chosen servant of God. And here you have this inner struggle within their country. Are we going to be deceptive and sly or are we going to be submissive and servants? Which one are we going to be? uh, Listen, do we not battle that same duality in our own hearts? God saved you from sin, and there's that draw back to sin. 
We want to go back in, do wrong. We want to go back in, participate in things we used to before we were saved. Uh, we want to watch things on TV that don't please God. We want to use language that's off color and filthy. Uh, we, we long for the days we had the good old times in the world, uh, but yet we know we're saved and we're to live uh, holy and sanctified. That same struggle described in verse 9, Israel and Jacob. Which one is going to rule the day? Is it going to be the Spirit of God or is it going to be the flesh? Are you going to be Israel today, uh, Jews, or are you going to be Jacob today? Look at verse 9. Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief men thereof and said unto thee, Thou art my servant. I have chosen thee and not cast thee away. I just think back to the time where God went to Ur the Chaldees and found Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to get up and I want you to leave and I'm going to take you to a land. I'm going to show you and I'm going to make of you a prosperous nation by you, Genesis 12. All the nations of the world will be blessed. All the nations. What did that mean? What did that promise to Abraham mean? What that meant was that Jesus Christ was going to be born through Abraham's lineage. And through Jesus Christ, all nations of the world would be blessed. How many of you are not Jew but been blessed because Jesus was born tonight? Amen? You know what that is? That's all nations of the world being blessed because God chose Abraham and called him to leave. You know, Abraham had to get up. He had to leave friends and family behind. He had to sell his brick and mortar home. And he had to leave his running water behind. You say, did he have running water? By my study, during Abraham's time in Ur the Chaldees where he lived, they had running water in his home. They had indoor plumbing in his home. And he left all that behind from what I've read. And he went lived out of the tent the rest of his life. Wow. Can you imagine that? Now, I enjoy indoor plumbing. I love indoor plumbing. Amen? I don't want to go live in some tent in the middle of the wilderness for the rest of my life. Miss Angela really doesn't want to go live in a tent in the middle of the wilderness the rest of her life. Amen? All right. Afterwards. Afterwards. Okay? And so, listen. Tonight, all I'm trying to say is, he made a sacrifice, Right? God chose him and called him out to do something great. And God said to the Israelites, just like I picked Abraham to do something great, I'm still going to use you in a great way. So we see here that they were to be his servant. Now, what does it take for you to be willing to be a servant to someone else? That is a very hard question. I hope I'm stimulating thought tonight. What, does it, what would it take for you to be willing to say, I am that guy's servant. Now think about it this way, all right? If I were to go and get a job at a local uh, area restaurant, much like Miss Jenna has here, and I were to be hired to be a server. I'm a server. You know what that means? When Sean comes walking in my restaurant, him and Miss Melba, they sit down at one of my tables and I walk over and I am their server. You know what that means? If he wants his, his, uh, his drink refilled, I should be there to fill it, right? He says, hey, uh, my steak's not cooked right. You know what I'm to do? I'm to take that steak back to the kitchen and yell at the cook. Amen? Hey, get this guy's steak right. My tip's on the line, right? Okay. I am serving him. But you know what? When he gets up and walks out of that restaurant, I'm not serving him anymore. You with me? Okay. God has called us to be his servants. But not while he's sitting at a table. We're to be his servants full time. Why would he be worthy of us serving him? Because of Jesus. Because Jesus left heaven and he came down here 
and He became one of us. God wrapped in flesh. And after 33 years of never lying, stealing, cheating, cursing, or breaking any of the laws, some evil men who hated Him and were jealous of Him nailed Him up on a cross. And while He hung on that cross, God in heaven, His Father, took all of my iniquity and your iniquity. And Jesus became my sin and died in my place. Your sin and died in your place. And now, He has offered us salvation freely. Now, we're all born servants to sin and Satan. And the moment that you put your faith in Christ, He purchases you away from Satan and He buys the rights to you to be His servant. But do you live like His servant? Or do you live how you want? You're going to be either a servant to the Lord or you're going to be a servant to Satan. And when you are a servant to Satan, you're pursuing idolatrous living. When you pursue the Lord, you're pursuing a much, much better avenue. And God says to the Israelites, Hey, hey, don't get distracted by the idolatry of the world. Put your focus on Me and worship Me because those idols can't do anything for you, but I can. Number one, the prophecy of Cyrus. Number two, notice the promise to Israel. The promise to Israel. God makes three promises over the next uh, few verses here. Notice uh, letter A, God promised strength in weakness. If you're looking for a good Bible verse to memorize, let me encourage you to memorize verse 10. Look at verse 10. Oh, this is a beautiful verse of Scripture. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. God says here, when times get tough, if you will worship me instead of pursuing uh, idols, instead of pursuing passions that are contrary to, to, to worshiping me, God says, if you'll do that, you will not need to fear. I will take your weakness and I will give you great strength. I will take your weakness and I will bear you up on eagle's wings. I will take your weakness and I will help you. I love the ver- part of the verse that says, look, th- look back at verse 10. It says, for I am with thee, be not dismayed. Be not dismayed. You ever laid in bed at night and your mind raced and you couldn't fall asleep? You ever sat and wrung your hands wondering with worry how you're going to pay a bill or how a relationship is going to work out or how a health struggle was going to come about to be resolved? You ever had to have a really hard conversation with someone that you loved and felt your heart race knowing fear has overtaken me. I don't want to do this. The Bible says if you'll worship me, you won't need to fear. You won't need to be dismayed because I'm your God and I'm going to help you. He gives us strength and weakness. Look with me at Psalm chapter 27 and verse number 1. Here David says, The Lord is my light. And my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
Well, I'm walking in the light. I can see clearly. I've been rescued and saved. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Why would I be afraid? Why would I walk in fear? Why would I worry about tomorrow when I know that God is holding the lamp that shines down at my feet and out at my path? Why would I be afraid when the Lord has already rescued me from an eternity of hell, rescued me to an eternity in heaven, and has my best interest at heart? I don't need to be afraid. How about Psalm 56 and verse 3? Turn over there. We looked at this verse on Sunday or two Sundays ago. Psalm 56. Remember, this is the chapter David wrote right after he had gotten himself in trouble and was foaming at the mouth and having to feign himself mad, the Bible says. And um, right after he got out of that ugly situation there in Gath, he, uh, he wrote this psalm saying, I have learned my lesson to, to fear God and not fear man. David says in verse 3, What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Where do we turn when we're afraid? Do we turn to human logic? And do we turn to man-made systems? Uh, do we run to idols? Or do we, we trust the Lord? Do we... Do we trust the Lord? How about, um, how about Psalm 91? Oh, Psalm 91 is the favorite psalm of many, many, many people or a very beloved psalm amongst God's people. I'd say it's one of the more famous ones. Let's read from verse 1 down through verse 5. It says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, My God, in Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare or the trap of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers and under His wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night nor for the arrow that flieth by day. You've got war going on all around you. Bombs bursting in air outside your window at night. You've got bullets flying over your head during the day. But there's no reason to be afraid because you know who your God is. And in our weakness, God is there uh, to, be, to hold us up. God is there to take our discouraged heart and give us encouragement. God promised to Israel strength and weakness. God promised to Israel, let her be, supremacy over the wicked. Look back at verse number 11 of our chapter here. Supremacy over the wicked. Um, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at, before we read the, the passage, I look at how wicked and evil our world is getting, and I'm intimidated. Am I alone on that? I'm just intimidated, Right? I think, good night, can we withstand the, the force of evil and all their systems? They, they seem to be so well-structured and well-organized and like a fine-tuned machine, wave after wave of sin and evil just comes crashing down culturally upon us and the bedrock of our Judeo-Christian ethos as a country being washed away. And I turn around and say, this is not the country I was born in just 38 years ago. What is going on? And what does the future hold? And what kind of country am I going to leave my children and my grandchildren? I don't know about you, but at times I think, God, I need you because I'm overwhelmed by all this. I'm a little bit nervous about the country my children and grandchildren are going to inherit. I really am. God says, even in that time, don't be afraid. Because ultimately, I'm in charge. Look at verse 11. Behold, all they that were incest against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing. Oh, I like that. 
and they shall strive with, and they that strive with thee shall perish. Thou shalt find them, or thou shalt seek them rather, and shalt not find them. Even them that contended with thee, they that war against thee shall be as nothing, and as a thing of naught. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand. Oh, I like that. Saying unto thee, Fear not, for I will help thee. Now, I love the description here because this gets a little weird and then begins to make sense, all right? Fear not, thou worm, Jacob. What? He's calling him a worm. He's, he's, drawing a, he's drawing a visual illustration here, okay? I have in the Bible the word worm circled. And then in verse 15, I have the words having teeth circled in a line connecting that. For, for not, fear not, thou worm, Jacob. And ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One, Holy One of Israel. So picture Jacob as a worm and a whole mountain of problems in front of them. Fifteen, behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument having teeth. Oh, so now this worm has teeth. Thou shalt thresh the mountains and beat them small. You're going to take mountains of problems and turn them into little molehills and shalt make the hills as chaff. Those problems that are hills are going to disappear like chaff that blows away in the wind. Then shalt thou fan them. There's the wind. And the wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them. And thou shalt rejoice in the Lord and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. Oh, there's so much here. God says that when the wicked intimidate you and scare you and you don't know how you're going to overcome, He says, I'm right by your side to hold your hand. I'm going to walk you through this process and at the end of the day, you're going to go looking for all those wicked people and you're not going to be able to find them because they're going to be no more. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful to know that we have a God who's so much greater than the evil? Last week we saw out of chapter 40 uh, how that um, uh, God is able to, to, to be greater than the universe and hold the water of the world in His hand and weigh the dust of the world in a scale and measure the universe by a span. And tonight we see that God is not only greater than the, the physical realm, but God is greater than the, the human realm. God is greater than all of it. We see that He has supremacy over the wicked. He, he gives us strength in our weakness, but God promised Israel not only strength and weakness and supremacy over the wicked. Notice letter C. He promises streams in the desert. Streams in the desert. Look at uh, chapter 47 and verse 17. We're going to intro this and we're going to pick up here next week on this thought here. We're going to flesh the rest of this thought out next week. Look at verse 17. The Bible says, When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valley. So he's going to take the desert and turn it into a garden. Look here. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Here comes the, um, was it, who was it, Miss Barbara earlier that was praising God for there being color right before the winter? Look here at the, at the color God is going to send to the wilderness by way of plant. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the shitta tree, and the myrtle, and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the fir tree, and the pine, and the box tree all together, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord hath done this. And the Holy One of Israel hath created it. God says, in your wilderness, your time of great dearth, 
your time of great struggle, where you're, where you're thirsty and the tongue cleaves to the roof of your mouth because you're so thirsty, I, the Lord, will up high in a mountain somewhere start a stream of water that will come flowing down and create a pool right there in your wilderness. And I will then allow plants and trees to grow and I will take your struggle and I will turn it into something beautiful. And I have to say that if we serve a God that can relationally meet us in that time of need and help us then He is a God that is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our worship. We should not turn to idols. We should not turn to sin in our struggle. We should turn to God in our struggle and let Him be our place of rest. Amen? So tonight I would say to you that God is greater than your fears. Whatever it is that you are afraid of, God here says whether it's a physical need, whether it's a spiritual need, whether it's an emotional need, don't turn to idolatry, don't turn to sin, Turn to the God of heaven. He's going to be greater than all your fears. Let's stand together. We'll finish up the Bible study next week. We'll come back to that thought of streams in the wilderness. We're going to look at some passages uh, throughout Isaiah and the book of John and talk about how that applies to us in today's time. Amen? Let's pray. We're going to go home. All right, Lord, thank you for tonight. We pray that you would take the Bible study and help us to, Lord, just rejoice that you're greater than any struggle that we have. Thank you, Lord, for how you're working in our church. We pray you'd continue to do so. Give us a good rest of our week, each one here tonight. We pray that you would just energize them spiritually. And, Lord, help them as they take the truth and, uh, out into the world. And, Lord, seek to be a blessing and a help to so many in need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your evening. We'll see you Saturday and Sunday.